Well, friends, once again, welcome. It's a delight to have you here today to worship the Lord together as a family. With that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, we continue our series through the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus leading up to his death and resurrection in early April. This morning, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, friends, I am delighted to say that a mystery has been solved. A mystery relating to how my sweet mother got her middle name Duarte. Now for years we knew that her middle name was Portuguese and we also knew that she got it from her mother who had been given the middle name Duarte. And we realized that it came from the ministry of my great-grandfather, who was one of the first Presbyterian uh, missionaries to Brazil. And the language in Brazil is Portuguese, and so we inferred from that that, you know, that name was somehow special to my great-grandfather. He gave it to his daughter, and then it was given to their daughter, my mother. Um, My mother thought that it meant little flower. It doesn't. Um, And we didn't know much more about it than that. So this past week, um, I told you um, last week that uh, I'm doing this, I've signed my mother up for that, that program called StoryWorth that sends out prompts you know, every other week so that ultimately a, a memoir of your loved one can be, can be um, put together in a book. 
And so this past week, I'm not going to be doing this every week. We're not going to have a story worth update. But th this one, when they're good, I've got to share them, all right? Um, this week, the prompt was, um, in your family history, who do you wish you would have been able to meet? And so my mother listed her grandfather, Dr. William Butler, and um, that she wished she could have known more about him, interacted with him, because he spent 36 years in Brazil. He was a medical doctor and a pastor and had a remarkable ministry in Brazil. She wishes she would have known him. So as soon as I got that on Wednesday, there wasn't a whole lot more work getting done on Wednesday afternoon. I had done some research into the life and ministry of my great-grandfather. But on Wednesday afternoon, I did a deep dive, okay? In the course of my deep dive, I found in the archives of the University of Richmond, like a 70-page paper, a master's thesis that was written in 1960 about the life and ministry and impact of my great-grandfather on Brazil. I had no idea that this was there. And so in reading through that and others, it shared a story of the very first person that he baptized and came to Christ in his ministry, and they shared her name, Maria Barbara Duarte. And the mystery was solved. We knew exactly how my mother got her middle name. To say that that context added meaning and significance to that name would be a massive understatement. Okay, we also found out that the name doesn't mean little flower. You know what it means? Edward. <laughs> it is. So, uh, I love the name now. I should probably give one of my sons that name, since it's Edward. Um, but that name is now far more meaningful than it was before when it stood alone. Now that we know the context in the background. Beautiful name. Um, and Lord willing, now my children might be incentivized to use it as well. Well, our passage this morning is similar in some ways. Because when you know the greater context, when you know the full background, the temptations of Jesus mean far more than if we just read them alone. Now, the immediate context of this passage is pretty clear. Like, it's clear what Luke and Matthew are trying to do, okay? If you have been a part of this series, you've already seen that one major thing that's going on in the life of Jesus, and we've used this fancy word, recapitulating, okay? We've used that word for a few weeks now, that one of the, one of, one major facet and feature of Jesus' ministry is that he is recapitulating something. You should now know what Jesus is recapitulating. He's reenacting. He's reliving. Okay, he's, he's reliving, re-experiencing all of the difficulties, all of the challenges, all of the trials that Israel experienced in the wilderness and beyond. And so what we see in the life of Jesus is that he is reliving, reenacting, re-experiencing everything that his people did, right? so that he can fill out the resume of redemption, so that he can be qualified to perfectly represent you and me. 
And so there is this intentional comparison between Jesus, the new Israel, and what Israel experienced in the wilderness. In fact, that's why the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, so he could experience what his people experienced. And everywhere they went wrong, the new Israel was going to get right. But see, Luke adds something that Matthew does not add. Matthew, the end of Matthew chapter 3, Matthew records the baptism of Jesus at the hands of John. We looked at that last week. Matthew then goes straight into the temptations. Luke doesn't do that, okay? In Luke chapter 3, um, Luke also shares Jesus' baptism at the hands of John the Baptist, but then Luke adds something. Do you know what Luke adds? Luke then adds a genealogy, and he sandwiches a genealogy between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation. Why does he do that? Because Luke's point is this. Jesus is not only the new Israel. Jesus is also the second Adam. Because the genealogy starts with Jesus and then goes back and ends with Adam. Okay, so as Jesus is led into the wilderness, as he's tested and tried in similar ways to the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings, it also goes back even farther than that. It goes back to Adam. Jesus, Jesus is not just the new Israel. He is the second Adam. And so the temptations and the trials did not start in the wilderness. They started in the garden. With that context, it means even more. So let's look at these three temptations. Let's consider what they meant for Jesus, what they meant for Adam, Israel, and briefly what they mean for us. Okay, temptation number one, verses three and four but we're going to read the context first. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, like analogous to the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the desert. Okay, it was, it was a symbolic, again, um, analogy to that. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, it was probably just a fast from food, probably not an, you know, an entire fast from water as well. But nevertheless, at the end of those 40 days, he would have been hungry beyond our ability to possibly comprehend. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. When, um, and so therefore, when he was at his most vulnerable, that's when Satan approached him with these temptations in particular. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. So question for our consideration. Just a little interesting trivia. Now, it's very clear that it would be a sin for Jesus to bow down and worship Satan in temptation number two. I think we can agree with that. It's obvious that that's a sin. Why would it be a sin for Jesus to turn a stone into bread? Okay, the text indicates the fast has come to an end. Okay, it doesn't indicate that like he would have sinned anyway by breaking the fast. Later in Jesus's ministry, he turned water into wine. He walked on water. He multiplied the bread and the fishes. Why would it have been a sin for Jesus to turn the stone into bread? What's the problem with that? 
I think we get a little hint when we consider Jesus' first kind of public miracle. Do you remember what his first public miracle was in the context of that? It was the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and they had run out of wine. And so who approaches Jesus? Do you remember? His mother? Okay, and it would have brought shame on her in a sense in her family and so for, to run out like this. And so she asks Jesus to do something about it. Do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, woman, my time has not yet come. He ultimately does it for her welfare and for her not to be shamed by this event. But we get insight. Jesus was not permitted to use his miraculous powers to ease his own situation from personal suffering. Now, in his capacity as the Son of Man and the Messiah of the living God, insofar as Jesus was authenticating and verifying, okay, and moving forward his role as the Messiah, he was permitted to do that. In fact, he was called to do that. Like when John the Baptist was doubting him, how do we know if you're the one? Should we look for someone else? Jesus appealed to his miracles that were foretold in the Old Testament. But as it related to Jesus in his, like, just personal agency, as a human being like you and me, he was not permitted to use miraculous powers to bypass suffering. If you were going on a fast in the wilderness, would you have been able to turn stones into bread? No. And therefore, he was not to either. As we've looked at week after week, Jesus is qualifying himself to be our Redeemer. As Nate beautifully explained from Hebrews, what is it that incentivizes us to approach the throne of grace according to Hebrews 4? It's the humanity of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. To encourage us to draw near... The writer of Hebrews says, the Lord Jesus, he was tempted in every way that you and I are, except he did not sin. He understands exactly what it means to be tempted and to live life in this incredibly dark and difficult and broken world. And he would not be able to do that if he would have succumbed to the temptation that Satan put before him. You know, it seemed like an innocuous thing, a small thing. It's not hurting anyone. But in order to represent you and me, he had to enter in in every way. That's the kind of Savior that we have. It's remarkable. Okay, Adam, very similar. We're going to see analogies in all the temptations of Adam, the temptations of Israel in the wilderness. What did God give to Adam in the garden? He said, I'm going to give you the fruit of every tree in the garden, save one. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, that fruit, for reasons only known to God, was forbidden. So I have provided for you in all of these ways with these delicious fruits and all these things except the fruit of one. You have to trust me in this. Trust my wisdom. This would not be good for you. And of course, Adam fell and trusted in his own wisdom. And Israel did that over and over again as it related to the manna. God had given a particular amount of manna. They could only take their daily bread. Okay, they could take extra on, on Friday, if you will, and then on the Sabbath, they weren't to take anything. And of course, they violated that over and over again. 
Okay, so temptation number one was the temptation for Jesus to use divine power to meet his personal needs. And where Adam and Israel were faithless, the Lord Jesus was faithful. I cannot imagine the power of that temptation. Um, you know, I, I know this seems silly, and, and, and on one level it is. And this is not in my notes, but just, I mean, what it meant for him to do this. You know, he, the point is he did not draw from his divinity to, to um, resist this temptation. It was just who he was in his humanity as the son of God. He had, he had to do it in that capacity. Just like over the break, and we had all these delicious desserts in our house, of which I was a happy partaker over the break, but that added some, you know, some caloric intake and some calories, and then when it was done, we decided we're not, we're not going to do that anymore, okay? But you just do that. You have like a delicious treat like that every night for like two or three weeks, and, and it starts, you know, like your body gets habituated to that. You know, and then you start to have cravings for that, and it's not easy. I mean, imagine, I mean, imagine the power of that that Jesus would have experienced in this first temptation. And yet he trusted God. Everything that Jesus is going to do is going to be rooted in the authority of God's word. To trust in the wisdom of God, the word of God, and not um, the wisdom of man, if you will. Temptation number two. Verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, probably in some kind of vision. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. I mean, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Um, this is very consistent with what we see in the rest of Scripture, that in, in, that in unique ways, Satan has a certain amount of power and control over this world. Verse 6, Satan said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.13 in that situation. So um, how would you describe the temptation here? Okay, I would describe the temptation here. It was a temptation to accept a role that had not been given to him by his heavenly father at this time. So Jesus is obviously a king. You remember where in scripture there's a reference to the kingship of Jesus. Well, Pilate, when he is cross-examining Jesus, he says, are you a king? Jesus acknowledges that he is a king. But then Jesus clarifies, my kingdom is what? It's not of this world. Okay, Jesus later says, you know, if I wanted to, I could command legions of angels to change the situation. But because Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, it's not a kingdom of this world, okay? It was not appropriate for Jesus to take Satan up on his offer, okay? And it's hard for us to relate to why this would be a temptation for Jesus. Like if we were in a Sunday school format, we could talk about that. 
Because people would think, why would this be a temptation for Jesus? He knew that he was God. He knew that he was sovereign over the universe. He knew that he had a kingdom. He knew that one day he would come into the fullness of his kingdom. Why would this be a temptation for Jesus? You have to understand, Satan would not have offered to anything to Jesus that would not have been a very real and powerful temptation. Okay, and if you're Jesus, you would be tempted that, okay, there is a cost to this. I have to bow down to Satan. But there would have had to have been an upside. Okay, and so for Jesus to, to have power and authority over the secular kingdoms of the world, and I'm just speculating. I mean, maybe Jesus thought, you know, I could set things right. I can care for my people. I can protect them. I can, I can rule and reign in Israel as is my divine right, you know. There would have been hundreds of ways for Jesus to justify the short-term cost of bowing down to Satan and then the benefits of ruling and reigning then and there. Okay, and that, we do that kind of thing all the time. Oftentimes when we sin, we don't just sin. We think about it. We consider it. The temptation has its way with us. And we justify it in a thousand ways why it's okay for us to say yes in this moment. You know, we don't think maybe it's a big deal. We're not going to hurt anybody. We can keep it under control. And we justify in all kinds of ways and say yes to sin. That happens all the time. It would have been very easy for Jesus to justify a very short-term cost. I'll bow down just one time, and then I will do tremendous good with this privilege, this, this honor, this capacity that's being given to me. It was a real offer. Like when Satan said, it's been given to me, and I can give it to whomever I wish. That was absolutely real. And yet, what does Jesus do? He rests in the word of God. Deuteronomy 6, 13. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, Adam and Eve were tempted in similar ways. You know, Satan you know, came to Adam and Eve and said, Did God really say, did God really say that when you eat, of this fruit you will surely die. And then what does Satan say? He says, God knows that's not going to happen. He knows that when you eat of it, you will become what? Like him, knowing good from evil. What do you think that means if you were sitting down over lunch today and you were trying to explain to someone, what does that mean? You will be like God, knowing good from evil. So that's the temptation before Adam, the temptation to be like God, to know good from evil, what does that mean? How would you explain that? On the surface, it seems a little ambiguous. What does it mean to be like God, knowing good from evil? I think on one level, what Satan was saying to Adam and Eve was, you're not going to die. You will become a God yourself. You will decide what is good and evil. God is the authority now. His word is the authority now. If you eat of this fruit, God understands that you will enjoy that capacity and authority and freedom yourself. You will decide. Um, a very, very powerful temptation, obviously one that Adam succumbed to. Israel faced all kinds of similar temptations. Um, very, very, very powerful. I think one thing I would just commend is as, as we're being tempted or whatnot, you know, to, to try to be aware of the way that you justify sin. 
We confess every week that we're sinners. We sin in thought, word, and deed all the time. You know, we should consider what our besetting sins are. All of us have sins that, that are, have unique power and draw to us. And how do we, in myriads of ways, justify that it's okay for us to indulge? What we find out in the second temptation, I would argue that all of sin, even what we would perceive to be the most minor and innocuous sin, is an expression of being like God, is an expression of self-worship, is, in a sense, you are setting yourself up as a rival God. That's why sin is so significant. I mean, people throughout the ages, when they look back at Genesis, they're like, this seems crazy. This is like the, the penalty that's leveled against Adam and Eve for eating fruit. It seems so disproportionate to what Adam did. I mean, non-believers, that seems crazy. You know, when, when non-believers look at Genesis, that, that in and of itself, in a sense, like they think that, that refutes the text because that just seems so absurd. Adam ate from this fruit, and yet he is cast outside the garden, and original sin is conferred on all his posterity. He earns hell and separation from God, from all of his descendants, for eating fruit. It wasn't just eating fruit. It was assuming the place and prerogatives of God Almighty. And according to the justice of the universe, it doesn't get more serious than that. That's the root and basis of all of sin. Temptation number three. Briefly, temptation number three. Verses 9 through 12. And he, Satan, took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle, you know, the highest part of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written. So what's the temptation there? If you are the Son of God, prove it. Satan was aware of what had just happened in Jesus' life. What happened at the end of Jesus' baptism, do you remember? God the Father, you know, the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and God the Father gives his approbation to the Lord Jesus. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my Son. And so just days after this, Satan is coming to him saying, Oh, okay, if you are really the Son of God, then Psalm 91 promises that God's angels will care for you in every situation. Satan was an expert in the Old Testament. Psalm 91, 11 and 12 was a, was, a, was a received and approved messianic psalm. And so Satan quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, that promises angelic care and protection for God's Messiah. And so what Satan is saying is if this is true, this is a no-brainer. If you really believe in the word of God, Jesus, then throw yourself off and we'll know for sure that it's true. Testing God is a sin because it good puts God on trial. Testing God is a sin because we're saying, God, you need to prove it. I'm not going to take your word at face value. I'm not just going to agree that it's true. I need you to prove yourself to me. And that's what we do all the time. Lord, I'll believe in you. I will trust you. Um, I will believe that you love me if this happens or that happens or if you answer this prayer or that prayer or a thousand other things. We are a people that are prone to put the Lord to the test. There's only one time in Scripture where we're allowed to test the Lord. Or the people were, if you remember back to our Advent series. In Malachi, there was a certain situation where the 
the nation was in recession and in distress, and the people weren't bringing their tithes. And so God said in that one situation, he said, test me in this. Bring your tithes to the storehouse and see if I don't open the windows of heaven. That was a specific situation. In all other situations, we are to take God at his word. God the Father had just told the Lord Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We are a people called to trust in the word of God and in his wisdom. Due to sin and finitude, we can never trust in our own. I mean, that's what Adam did. What was Adam doing when he ate the forbidden fruit? He was putting God to the test because God had said, if you eat of this, you're going to die. Satan said, if you eat of this, you won't die. You'll get all these benefits conferred. Adam ate. Adam tested. And of course, the entire fall followed from that. So friends, the question for Adam, for Israel, and for Jesus is, who are you going to trust? The authority of the word of God, Jesus Christ, is the word of God, or in your own wisdom, your own understanding. And I'll end with this. Friends, as you well know, temptations can be very powerful. They come from the outside, the world. They come from inside the flesh. They come from the devil. We face temptations all the time. But God did not leave us without any tools in the toolkit. He did not leave us without any weapons, without any means to fight temptation. Okay, we are not a victim to our temptations. Okay, besetting sins can be extremely powerful. Sins that seem to have unique sway with us. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. In other words, we are not tempted in, in unusual ways, in ways that other people are not tempted. Paul says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. In other words, you have power available to you in the Holy Spirit through his means of grace to say no. And he says, God is faithful. He will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. That is why we are a people that need to avail ourselves of the means of grace. When we eat and partake of the Lord's Supper, we are feeding on the strength and power and blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus. As we read God's word and memorize God's word and internalize God's word and love the word of God in Christ Jesus, we are strengthened and equipped to say no to temptation and yes to the Lord Jesus. We also have community. That's why community is so important. That's why COVID's been so difficult. It's, 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 it's cut people off from each other. You're not alone. We need to be arm in arm as we, as we combat the world, the flesh, and the devil. But beloved, we, we, we are not in this alone. As we'll, we'll end in the way we started. We have a high priest who's been tempted in every single way that we are, but was without sin, and it gives us every motivation to approach the throne of grace with confidence. No, he can, he can relate to us, and he cares for us, and he will strengthen us, beloved. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is, he's not only the, the new Israel, 
We thank you that he uh, successfully endured all the trials and temptations that Israel experienced. We thank you that in a sense he went back to the beginning in his capacity as the second Adam. And where Adam failed, the Lord Jesus was faithful in every way. Holy Spirit, as we love the Lord Jesus, as we worship him, Father, help us to trust in him. Help us to draw near to him. Father, we pray that you would give us grace and strength by the power of your Holy Spirit to be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteous living in him. We pray this in his matchless name. Amen.